And welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the senior editor at SlashFilm.com. And joining us today, he is the man who played Plumber in the 2011 film You May Not Kiss the Bride, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? David. Yes, sir. David. It took me a lot of work to get that credit of Plumber. Uh, because it was originally Buttcrack Plumber. That's right. I, I remember the story of Buttcrack Cl- Plumber. And I had mistaken. to negotiate with the powers that be to get it reduced from Buttcrack Plumber to Plumber. <laughs> even, even though I must say to Rob Hedden, our lovely director's credit, he did end up giving me a name in that. And we could use that as a trivia question for the game version of the Tobolowski Files. What was the name of the plumber? that Rob Hedden put on my uh, uniform. I'm going to feign ignorance and say, I don't know, Stephen. Why, Dave, the name of the plumber was Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and Dave everything, plumber. it all comes for a full circle. Yes, that's right. Oh, yeah, but that was uh, a fun show. As a matter of fact, I think that was actually right after, boy, what, what year was that? 2011, so this year. That we were recording recently. this. Yeah, uh, yeah. That was um, one of those jobs kind of when I was recovering and I needed to, to work. And, of course, I, I've had several calamities befall me. I had uh, the broken neck, which uh, we have heard about. And uh, this year I had my heart calamity and uh, where I needed the open heart surgery. And this was um, – this is Stephen. I was pounding the tom-tom drums to various directors I knew to say, does anyone have a job they could give me? And uh, Rob Hedden said, yes, I do. The role of butt-crack plumber. Bless I wrote him. it with you in mind. <laughs> Bless his heart. Um, well, Stephen, uh, we have one quick announcement before we get the show underway, which is just that uh, there are some upcoming live shows of the Tobolowski Files. And yes. uh, if you haven't heard about them, uh, you know what I'd, re- I'd recommend? Go to the Facebook page of the Tobolowski Files at facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, you want to spell it for us? Yes, that would be uh, T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O, L, O, W, S-K-Y. That's the Russian spelling. And that's Stephen with a P-H. So go to Facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky to check out information about our upcoming live shows. We hope to see you there. But Stephen, you mentioned uh, your recent heart surgery. That was some pretty scary stuff. We've been getting some emails in about, like, how are you doing? Are you recovering okay? (laughs) Uh, And I don't think you've ever really told the story of what happened with that whole thing. 
<laughs> I don't think I have. But uh, I'm flipping a coin. I think enough time has passed now. Maybe. I, I, you know, it's very hard to know about time, Dave. It's the one constant we have, but we never experience it that way. We sense time in waves. It either hits us in rushes, like when we fall in love, or when we have to run to the store to buy milk before the kids wake up, or it seems to recede and almost stop altogether, like when we get pulled over for a traffic ticket, or when we do aerobics. Yes, I was involved with that second experience of time, aerobics. I was in Dallas with my father. This was last November, early December. Dad is in his mid-80s and blind. And time had taken away the two real loves of his life, watching sports on TV and mom. He had very few things left that made him smile. He enjoyed eating, which he denied himself because he didn't want to gain weight. And he enjoyed going to the gym. He loved going there and saying hello to all the staff and sitting on the various pieces of exercise equipment and weighing himself, which he did frequently over the course of the hour we were there. Dad and I pulled into the parking lot, and time was already slowing to a crawl. It took a decade for me to get out of the car. The walk from the parking lot to the gym took a century. And punching in my weight on a new exercise machine felt longer than the director's cut of Lord of the Rings. I figured I could do 20 minutes on the elliptical. I like elliptical machines. It wasn't as dangerous as the treadmill. It had handles you could grab onto, and you're less likely to be thrown off the back end. And you still get all of the health benefits of going nowhere. This particular machine had the advantage of being stationed in front of a row of working television sets. That was good. But you had to pay for the headphones to hear what was happening. Well, I wasn't about to do that. I was content to lip-read what was happening on ESPN. I've learned that you don't really need sound to enjoy most television. Top Chef and Who Will Be America's Next Top Model work perfectly well without sound. And The Real Housewives of New Jersey is actually better silent. I was on minute six, and I was pretty happy with my life. Dad was smiling. He was sitting on a rowing machine chatting with an old friend. Without paying for headphones, I knew ESPN was talking about football running backs, I guess. Well, they kept showing men on different teams running into the line of scrimmage and occasionally breaking loose for a long game. Whatever, I was satisfied. That's when I felt something strange. There was a pressure on my chest, on my breastbone to be exact. Now, there was no pain. It felt like my shirt needed adjusting, so I shifted around on the elliptical. I stretched my arms. It didn't go away. I figured it was some kind of muscle tightness. I did 17 minutes, and I stopped. I didn't tell anyone about the strange feeling, but the experience worked on me. I thought about it all night. As much as advertising is based on selling us something new, when it comes to our bodies, we don't like new. New usually means bad. When people ask, how are you doing? I think we're secretly very happy when we can shrug our shoulders and say, eh, the same. I was eager to get to the athletic center the next day to jump on that elliptical and see if that nasty new feeling had returned. And it didn't. The pressure was gone. I did 30 minutes, no problem. I was flooded with relief, and not just physical relief, but emotional and spiritual relief as well. For the next 24 hours, I felt indestructible. I even ate barbecue. I was reborn. 
until the next day at the gym. I felt the pressure again. And in that instant, once more at the six-minute mark, I knew several things. I knew what I was feeling was not an event, like a twisted ankle, but something more, something doctors refer to as a condition. Conditions are not good. I learned this as a child. When I was a little boy, we used to go to the tiny coal mining town of True, Pennsylvania to visit my mother's family. That's where I met Paul Friedman. He had a condition. Mr. Freeman used to run the corner ice cream shop, and on summer evenings, Aunt Esther would walk the three of us kids across the street for a double scoop of ice cream. Mr. Freeman suggested I try a new flavor. It was called butter pecan. He thought I would like it. He was so right. It was love at first lick. I remember asking Aunt Esther if they ate butter pecan ice cream in heaven, and without taking a beat, she smiled at me and said, Yes, Stevie, they do. While I was finishing my first scoop, I asked Mr. Freeman, Why is your nose purple? Aunt Esther's smile turned to the embarrassment we often feel around the non-filtered aperture called a child's mouth. Mr. Freeman shook his head and calmly explained, He had one of the first nose jobs of the 1940s. His nose turned purple because of a circulatory problem. Mr. Freeman sighed and said, Stevie, my nose is purple from a metabolic condition. It changes you. When you have a metabolic condition, you will never be the same. I felt terrible for this wonderful man, and I vowed to myself I would never grow up to have a metabolic condition. Side note, the last time I saw Paul Friedman was on a cross-country car trip I took in 1972. I was with my college roommate, Jim McClure, and we got acting jobs to do summer stock in a barn in Forestburg, New York. On our way north, we stopped in troop. I took Jimmy over to the corner shop for a scoop of butter pecan. Mr. Friedman was still there. He was sitting in a rocking chair over by the ice cream counter. He recognized me right away. He got up. He gave me a big hug. He shook Jimmy's hand. I asked him if we could have two scoops of butter pecan for old time's sake. Mr. Friedman shook his head sadly and said, Stevie, I'm sorry. I gave up scooping a long time ago. It was my metabolic condition. But you can have a popsicle. Jim and I got two orange popsicles for the road. We thanked him and were on our way. Mr. Friedman taught me that a metabolic condition was nature's version of a life sentence. I knew the second that gentle pressing on my breastbone wasn't a pulled ligament, it wasn't a tweak joint. It had to be my heart. I needed to get a checkup. And this is where I encountered my first miracle. I actually went to the doctor. Yes, now I'm a pretty typical male who in pretty typical male fashion never goes to the doctor. My wife asks me why. Where do I start? In no specific order, I don't like filling in all the forms. I don't like pulling my insurance cards out of my wallet. I don't like the prostate exam. I don't like the magazines in the waiting room. I don't like sitting on butcher paper. I don't like the prostate exam. And I don't like how much they charge for parking. But this time I went. Not because I was being health-minded for once in my life, but because it was December and I had already paid my deductible on my health insurance for the year. If I waited till January, I would have to pay full price. So I went to see Jeff, my doctor. Jeff is a pretty amazing guy. He's been my primary physician since 1981. That's 30 years. 
And we have been through it all together. We've been through children, insanity, breakups, bad jokes, new hairstyles, and the changing landscapes of the healthcare system. If he could wave a magic wand, Jeff would probably rather be a photographer instead of an internist with a specialty in cardiology. Jeff never liked my heart. He had a problem with it years ago when my EKG came back abnormal. He did some research and told me I had something called black basketball player syndrome. First off, I didn't like the name. It seemed like they could have worked on it a little longer until they found something that didn't conjure up images of a medical emergency and the Ku Klux Klan at the same time. But the science behind it is pretty interesting. In the 1980s, they did volunteer testing of black men in Philadelphia who liked to play pickup basketball games in the public courts. The original purpose was to see what the level of cardiac fitness was in these casual but serious athletes. The doctor ended up with unexpected findings. A high percentage of the men had abnormal EKGs. They showed that their hearts appeared to be in distress while they were at rest. The pattern could even be mistaken for a heart attack. However, once the men got on the court and started playing, their hearts took on a normal rhythm. Jeff was afraid that if a bus ever hit me, the paramedic might think I was having a heart attack when I wasn't, and then he would either electrocute me or inject me with something that would be more fatal than being hit by the bus. Jeff told me I should always carry a copy of my EKG in my wallet. I mentioned that the paramedic who was going through my wallet while I was unconscious might not be the guy who would be looking for a copy of my EKG while he was rummaging around in there. That was over a decade ago. I reminded Jeff of my black basketball player syndrome. He looked at me like I was crazy and then was hit with a flash of remembrance and said, oh, right, right, well, they changed the name of that. I said, well, that's good at least. Jeff remained focused. He said, this looked different and insisted I get a nuclear stress test. Miracle number two, I did. And miracle number three, I did it quickly. Again, because it was December and my insurance deductible had been paid. While I was on the treadmill in the office, I felt the pressure on my breastbone. And believe it or not, I was happy. In my experience, most of the time when you go to a doctor, the thing that's bothering you goes away like roaches in a New York apartment when you open the door. Not today. I finished the stress test. Jeff was wearing his usual expression, which was a strange mixture of amusement and concern. As I left, he was looking at yards and yards of printouts. Jeff told me he would check on the results and call me. Now, that was good, because I knew from past experience there was a good chance Jeff might not remember to call. This could all add up to nothing. Jeff phoned me on the 28th of December. I've got some bad news. I think your test shows there's a blockage. Pause. While I saw my life and Paul Friedman's nose pass before my eyes. I said, you think there's a blockage? Jeff said, hey, margin of error, we live in litigious times, but just me to you, it doesn't look good. I was subconsciously kicking myself for every buttered roll I had ever eaten. I said, what can we do? Jeff said, well, we have five options. One, we could do nothing. I said, hey, I like that one. I'm sure, said Jeff. As I was saying, we have five options. One, we could do nothing. Two, we can try drugs. Three, you can get a non-invasive scan in the hospital. We could see if the arteries are blocked. Or four, you can get 
the invasive test, the old-fashioned angiogram, where they put a cable into the artery of your thigh, work it up into your heart, and look at things from the inside. That's still the most effective test we have. I paused and then said, and? And Jeff said, and what? I said, you said that there were five options. That was only four. Jeff said, oh, the fifth option is you could do something stupid like drop dead while you're trying to decide what you want to do. The thought of the angiogram terrified me. I read that they were dangerous. That was why I was so surprised when I said, angiogram, Jeff, and let's do it as soon as possible. Jeff said, good choice. I said, I have a question. I heard the test is risky. People can die from an angiogram? Jeff gave me the straight dope. About one out of every 1,000 patients has a complication from the test and dies, but the statistics are getting better all the time. He said, look at it this way. It's safer than not having an angiogram and dropping dead while you're crossing the street. I said, but Jeff, I'm not going to drop dead when I'm crossing the street. He said, how do you know? I said, because I'm not. Jeff said, Stephen, you haven't seen your EKG. I was due to get the angiogram on the 4th of January. Happy New Year! (laughs) Each day leading up to then was like a waking nightmare of worry. I felt pressure on my breastbone just walking to the park. I googled it and came up with something horrible called resting angina, which Wikipedia said was a bad sign. They suggested an angiogram, and when I googled angiogram, the diagram of the procedure was enough to give me more resting angina. This went on from morning to night. I called my brother Paul. He's a doctor. He calmly told me about the procedure. I told him about my fears. Paul listened and said, Stevie, the thing about dealing with any ailment is that people seem to experience all of their fears at once. Look at you. You're already afraid you're going to die. Medicine never happens at once. You don't have to make all of the decisions now. You just have to make the next one. Today, you know your stress test was troubling. That's all. Just focus on the next step. In medicine, there's always going to be some risk, no matter what you do. But doctors are very good at angiograms now. You're going to a hospital where they do a lot of them every day. Frequency is important in medicine. Like anything else, doctors need practice. You'll go in. Everything will be fine. The doctors will let you know what the next step is. They're drugs for angina. You may need a stent. It could all be nothing. You don't know. You can deal with that later when the time comes. There's no need to borrow fear from a future problem you may never have. Can I just say, I love my brother. The burden of literally taking the pulse of everyone in our family has fallen on his shoulders. Every pain, every infection, every crisis, he has been there. From mom's heart attacks and Alzheimer's, through dad's blindness, to delicately suggesting that my children should probably be taking prescription tranquilizers when they go out in public. 
For years, he has carried the weight. Talking with Paul didn't bring calm, but it brought the next best thing, a sense of fate. I felt like the angiogram at 6 a.m. on the 4th of January would go however it would go. I've learned over the years that going is almost always better than wondering what would have happened if you never went. This applies to everything except bungee jumping and drinking water in Mexico. Jeff suggested a cardiologist with a great track record to do the procedure. The morning of the 4th, I went to the hospital. I was matriculated, which means my credit card was swiped. The secretary asked me if I had an advanced directive. I had no idea what that was. It sounded like they wanted to sell me something. So I said, no. The woman said, well, maybe you should talk it over with your wife. Maybe you should have one. I said, well, I think we have about all we can handle right now. I went back to my seat and asked Anne if we had an advanced directive. She said, no. I asked her what it was. She said, it's a do not resuscitate waiver. So if something were to go wrong, it gives instructions to the doctors as to when they could pull the plug. What? I was horrified. Not that such things exist, but that they would have the bad manners to ask me right before the procedure. That's like asking a dinner guest if they have diarrhea right before you serve them clams with red sauce. I sat and stewed until they called me to go to pre-op to get sufficiently drugged for the test. Side note, they told me for the angiogram I would not be sedated, but just be given a little something to make me relax. Apparently, they use so many drugs at a hospital that when they use just a few, they consider you not sedated. I grew up in Texas, where sedated was defined by the side of the Dristamp box, where they told you not to drive farm machinery if you popped a capsule or two. Believe me, for an angiogram, unless you are Keith Richards, you will feel sedated. They wheeled me out of pre-op on a gurney. I always thought it would be fun to be wheeled through a hallway on a gurney. This was a big disappointment. It was not fun at all. It was more stressful than riding in our old nanny's Volkswagen that occasionally burst into flames. I would have suggested they slow the hell down had I not been high on something the anesthesiologist wistfully said would take the edge off. I was completely edgeless when I made it to the operating room. They told me they were transferring me to the actual operating table. Three strong male nurses started rolling me like pizza dough from one horizontal surface to another. I would have helped, but I had lost all feeling in my limbs. In fact, I remember only having control over my eyeballs and tongue. I was amazed at how narrow the actual operating table was. It was only about two feet wide. It was metal and very, very cold. Several hooded, masked nurses gathered around me. They looked like the witches in Macbeth. They were moving around the table with purpose. At first, I thought they were making incantations. Then I thought maybe they were playing air hockey. While I was watching them, I had a strange little dream. I was driving in a car, and my mother was sitting right beside me, and I was completely lost. I pushed the button for the navigation to come on, and a little screen on the dash lit up and a map appeared, but I didn't recognize any of the streets. I started scrolling to find something familiar, but the letters and the numbers made no sense. I remember I felt like crying. Mom said, Stephen, don't be upset. You only think you're lost because you don't recognize the map. You know right where you are. If the map were a little bigger, you would see all the streets you know. Just be patient. Soon, you'll see a landmark. Look around you. They're everywhere. 
I looked at Mom's face. More than her words, her face was strong and filled with confidence. It inspired trust. I looked around and the nurses were still moving around me rapidly. The table was really cold. I remember asking, hey, can we get this show on the road? I'm freezing here. One of the nurses said, oh, we're all done. We're just cleaning up. I said, you're done? I didn't feel anything. One of the male nurses laughed and said, well, I guess that's the point. One of the lady nurses added, actually, the heart has no nerve endings on the inside. So once we're there, it's painless. Painless? Are you kidding me? You know, you could have told me that in the lobby instead of all that advanced directive stuff. I mean, out of all the things you could have said, painless would have helped. And it would have helped the last few days waiting. I mean, this is a little constructive criticism. Next time, the no pain thing should go up on top of the list of the info you tell a patient. So anyway, uh, what happens next? Do I wait and see if I need a stent? Suddenly, my cardiologist's face appeared over me. He said, no stent, Stephen. I go, thank God. He continued, stents won't help. You're too far gone. You need immediate surgery, a triple bypass. What? He said, talk it over with Jeff. We need to operate. That's when I realized they don't give you the drugs for the procedure. They give you the drugs to handle the results. I was wheeled into the recovery room. A very worried Anne was waiting there for me. She tried her best to smile. The combination of terror and trying to put on a brave front almost split her face in two. She looked like a Picasso painting. Jeff was waiting for me, holding a huge manila folder filled with green pages. Do you know how bad these test results are, he said. I shook my head. The angiogram showed one of your primary arteries was 98% blocked. 98%. A second was 75% blocked, and your main artery was 45% blocked. You would never have known what hit you. So, are you going to have the surgery? Hell yes, I am. Do you think I'm crazy? Jeff said, calm down. I love your enthusiasm. You know that that dramatically increases your chance of survival. So, who would you like to do the surgery? Jeff, how do I know? I don't know these guys. I don't know who almost flunked out of medical school or who still has LSD flashbacks. If this were happening to you, who would you want to do your surgery? Jeff hardly thought about it at all, which I took as a very good sign. You know, there are a lot of good doctors here, but I would pick Dr. Cass. He does this surgery a lot. He has a national reputation. Well, I said, that's the guy I want. Jeff considered and made a face. I should tell you, Stephen, he's an older man. He's close to retiring in case you wanted someone younger. I said, Jeff, this isn't a sitcom for the ABC Family Channel. I don't need youth. I need experience. I need Mike Wallace. Get me a guy who looks like a reporter on 60 Minutes. That's who I want. Jeff didn't say a word. He headed for the door. I called out in a panic. Where are you going? Jeff stopped and turned to me. I'm going to go get the old guy. Don't worry. I'll be back. Jeff left the room. To his everlasting credit, in an age of iPhones, texting, and Facebook, he did it old school. He walked over to another building in the hospital complex. He walked into Dr. Cass's office, took him by the arm, and personally delivered him to me in the recovery room. Dr. Cass stepped into the room. He was not what I expected at all. From Jeff's description, I thought I had opted for Grandpa. 
but he didn't look old. In fact, he was young enough to be a television executive. He came over to the bed where Anne was stroking my brow. Dr. Cass had a sort of regal bearing. He didn't walk so much as stride. He was the only man I ever met who was born to wear an ascot. He raised his eyebrows. So, I hear you're having a bad day. I mustered a smile. I've had better. But on the bright side, as my brother would say, it's just a day I found out something was wrong. Dr. Cass frowned. Well, we don't have a lot of time. I know, I know, I said. Jeff told me my results were bad. No, said Dr. Cass. I wasn't talking about that. I have jury duty. Jury duty? I know, I know, bad timing. So we could either do this in, Dr. Cass checked his watch. We could do this in, say, 36 hours, which is cutting it close, or we can do it in two weeks when I get back from the courthouse. I looked at Anna in a panic. Her face split a little bit more. I said to myself out loud, 36 hours? That's, that's soon. Right, said Dr. Cass. We would have to start pre-op right now. There are a lot of tests we have to do. I looked over at Anne with a certain amount of desperation. She looked back at me with equal portions of courage and despair, which is probably the basis of any successful marriage. She said, do whatever you want to do. I thought out loud again. Okay, 36 hours, that's way too soon. Everything will be the same in two weeks, right? Right. That would give me more time to call people, talk to my family, my agents, my rabbis, feed the rabbits, kind of mentally prepare. Right, said Dr. Kess, you'd have more time, no need to rush. Right, right, I said, so it's settled. Let's do it in 36 hours. The words just flew out of my mouth. Everyone in the room was in a sort of shock silence. That was interrupted by Jeff, who said, good choice. You don't want anything stupid happening, like you dropping dead while you're waiting to have surgery. Right, said Dr. Cass. It happens, especially when you have the sort of blockage you have. With no warning at all, people drop dead, crossing the street for a quart of milk. I said, okay, tell me the truth. Do you guys learn the dropping dead to get a quart of milk story in medical school? Yep, Jeff nodded. First day. Dr. Cass got a very down-to-business look in his eye. We're going to start pre-op now. That'll take about four or five hours. We have to find usable veins and arteries for the bypass. When you have coronary heart disease, it's not restricted to the heart. You may have blockages elsewhere. If we can, I'm going to use arteries instead of veins. I like them better. I know this is a silly question, Dr. Cass, but where do you get them? The veins, the arteries. Dr. Cass sat on the edge of my bed and said, We get them from the place God set aside for spare parts. Sometimes people have two arteries in their arm instead of one. We have two perfectly good arteries in our chest that we don't really need. We'll finish up with you tonight. I want you to go home and get some sleep. Take it easy tomorrow. And whatever you do, don't exercise. I know, I know. I could drop dead going to buy milk. Right, said Dr. Cass. Tomorrow, take care of all of your unfinished business. Say goodbye to whomever you need to say goodbye to. Dot your eyes. Cross your T's. We'll see you here at dawn on the 6th. We start at 5 a.m. Good luck. Dr. Cass left the room. Jeff came over to the bed and said, I'm off. I have work to do. I won't see you again until it's all done. You'll be in intensive care for two to three days afterwards, and then they'll move you to the cardio ward for about a week. I'll see you there.
Jeff headed out of the room, and I called out, So this whole thing will take about ten days? Jeff stopped and came back. No, assuming everything goes well, it'll take the rest of your life. They say it takes about three months to recover from the surgery. It really takes about a year if you count the time you're not covered by insurance. Sorry, that was a joke too. But this surgery is not a cure. It's just an opportunity. Like any opportunity, it's what you make of it. You're going to have to change your life. I'm glad you decided to do the surgery sooner. And you take care, Anne. You get some rest if you can. You're going to have the hardest time of anyone because you're going to have to be awake. Don't worry. It'll all go well. Or it'll go as well as it can go. And with that, Jeff left the room, and Anne and I were alone. We sat quietly for a few moments. Anne reached for my hand, and from out of nowhere, I suddenly felt like I was on the verge of tears. Anne held my hand more tightly. I think you did the right thing, she said. You get nothing out of putting it off. Now you'll be recovering that much sooner. This will be another adventure. I sighed and said, but I don't like these adventures. I'm sick of them. I just had the broken neck adventure. That took months to get over. And now they're going to break my ribs to do the surgery. That's another three months right there. And who knows how I'm going to be on the other side. Anne said, you can't worry about that now. We have to do this. And then we have to get you well. I'll do anything. We'll make it work. We'll change whatever we have to change. We'll move if we have to. I don't need anything. I just need you. I looked at Anne. I saw the love and care in her tired eyes, and suddenly I heard what my mother said to me in the dream I had in the operating room. Look for the landmarks. They're everywhere. In Anne's eyes, I saw all the streets I knew. Years of landmarks. All the ones that matter. And I didn't feel so lost anymore. I kissed her just as medical personnel in blue uniform came in. I was beginning to see an eerie similarity between the hospital and the Starship Enterprise. Everyone had on different colored smocks to designate what part of the ship they came from. The technician did ultrasounds of all of my veins and arteries. He marked the good and usable ones in black magic marker up and down my arms and legs. The weak or blocked ones he marked with dotted lines. By the end, I looked like the cover of my Alaska, the 49th state report I did in the fifth grade. He gave me a black magic marker to take home and said, Use this to make him good and dark after you take a shower. We don't want to make a mistake. So once again, my grade was going to be determined by my skill with the magic marker. I got home that evening around 7 o'clock. Some of the anesthetic was wearing off from the angiogram, and I could see the plug they had put in the artery in my thigh to keep me from bleeding out. I got instructions that if anything happened to that plug, to call 911. Well, you know, I wasn't worried in the least about the plug. In the big game of rock, paper, scissors, open heart surgery beats arterial plug any day of the week. I woke up the next morning, my last morning at home before crossing the Rubicon. I had one task, finish my unfinished business. I went to my desk, I turned on my computer, I saw a rough draft of the book of the Tobolowsky files I was doing for Simon & Schuster. I saw four incomplete stories. I saw another story I had just finished and needed to read again to see if it stunk. But I couldn't. I couldn't wrap my head around anything creative. There was no space left for that. I turned to my calendar. 
There were various appointments and interviews. I figured I would either be able to keep them or not. They had all become trivial in the scheme of things, and then it dawned on me. I had no unfinished business. I never had any. Everything I had done in my life, everything I was working on was just a tool I had used to measure the flow of time. None of it really added up to anything important. So, I called up Dad and told him I loved him. I called up my sister Barbie. I told her I loved her. I called up Paul, who started to cry. He told me I had been a great brother and not to worry. I was going to have a wonderful day. It was going to be a very important day. It would be a day I would always treasure. I thanked him for all of his help and for letting me be the reptile expert in the snake tent when I was seven. I told my boys I was having surgery and that I loved them. William told me not to go drama queen on him. (laughs) I told my agents and managers. And then I got a call from my dear friend Julie Haggerty and her husband Richard Kagan. Richard is my golfing partner, if you can technically call it golf, considering the alternate rules we use. He's also my insurance agent. They both wished me well on the speakerphone. And then Richard got on the line and said, So, Tobo, I know everything's going to go well tomorrow. I go, thanks, Richard. He said, so what name are you going to use? I said, beg your pardon? He said, what name are you going to use when you check into the hospital? You're not using your real name, are you? I said, Richard, I have no idea what you're talking about. He said, Tobo, you're not serious. You can't go in tomorrow with your real name. When you check in, it's public record. All the tabloids like TMZ scour those records every day for celebrities that are getting divorced, who just got arrested, or who are having a penile enhancement surgery. I go, Richard, I'm not a celebrity. No one cares. Listen to me, Tobo, he said. If word gets out you had heart surgery, producers may think you had a heart attack. I said, but I didn't. He said, I know. I know you didn't. Calm down. That's my point. No one knows. If word gets out, it can make it hard for you to be insured. You have to stay ahead of this story. You need to use a phony name. Actors do it all the time. Hospitals are used to it. You'll see. It won't be a problem. Okay. Okay. I feel stupid, but I'll do it. Great, said Richard. So, what name are you going to use? I thought about it for a little while, and then I chuckled inadvertently. Richard said, you got one. You got one. I could tell. What is it? You have to tell me. I said, Richard, when we were kids, we used to make up characters when we went to go bowl. My brother was Hugh Kablimbo Jr. My sister was the female champion, B. Tobbles, or Howard Dean Merriweather, and I was H.M. Hughes. I'll use that name. H.M. Hughes? I go, yeah, it's simple. It's a name. I won't have to spell it out for people. No one will suspect it's me. And he's the perfect character for tomorrow. Hughes was the oldest player on our bowling tour. He was always injured, but he played through it. He had to win by using his wits, and he was famous for making great comebacks. Richard said, H.M. Hughes. Sounds great. I'll be there tomorrow when you wake up, Mr. Hughes. Have a good night. Richard hung up. Day turned into afternoon. Time was flying. I could almost see the sun moving in the sky. I couldn't focus on anything. I decided to take a shower. I took off my clothes and saw myself naked in the bathroom mirror, covered with magic marker, and out of nowhere, I started crying. 
It took me completely by surprise. I couldn't stop. I sat on the bed and sobbed. I shook it off and turned on the water. I saw myself in the mirror again and thought this is the last time I would see my body as I was born, without a huge scar running down my chest. I climbed into the shower, (laughs) and I started crying again. I washed slowly and carefully. I realized I was saying goodbye to myself. I put on my nightshirt, and I remembered a story from the Talmud, the Jewish holy books compiled about 2,000 years ago. In the story, a man is huddled in his bedchamber. Death knocks on his door and comes into the room. The man is terrified. Death sits beside the man and is very pleasant and says to him, Why are you so scared? The man says, Because you are death. You are a stranger to me. Death smiles and says, I'm no stranger. I visited you many times before. I was there when you had the fever and when you ate the poisonous dates. I was there when you slipped and fell and hit your head. I was there each one of those times and introduced myself to you. You must not have been paying attention. I packed a small suitcase that Anne was going to bring when they moved me from the ICU to the cardiac ward. As evening fell, I saw other landmarks on my map. I remember the time I was held hostage at gunpoint, the time I fell in Iceland and broke my neck, the sickness I had when I was a child. I set the alarm clock for 3.30 a.m., and the phone rang. It was the hospital with final instructions. Nothing to eat or drink. Wear sweatpants and comfortable shoes or slippers, and above all, bring nothing. No wallet, no valuables, no wedding ring. Nothing. She said, in fact, take off the wedding ring now so you don't forget. I did. I told the woman that because I was an actor on the TV show Glee, I was going to use an alias when I came to the hospital. She said that was fine. Actors do it all the time. I thought to myself, Richard was right. He usually was. She asked me what name I wanted to use, and I told her my new name was going to be H.M. Hughes. There was a pause on the other end of the line, and she said, I don't understand. Spell it for me. I said, H as in house. M as in mighty, H-U-G-H-E-S, Hughes. She said she would change the paperwork. Pause. Oh, dear. I could handle almost anything but somebody saying they were going to change the paperwork. That made me tremble. But I couldn't worry about that now. She wished me a good night and said she would see me in the morning. It was 9 p.m., Annie came up to bed. We turned off the light and watched some television. She put her head on my shoulder. I told her where I put my wedding ring. She said she would keep it safe. I lay awake as long as I could. Time was flying, and I thought of the little story from the Talmud about death and how honest he was. I had been here before. I just never paid attention. Suddenly, I wasn't afraid. I smiled and held Annie tighter when I realized there were no strangers in the room.
That was The Rubicon, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Just want to give a couple of reminders for our listeners out there. Again, if you want to check out information on Stephen's upcoming live shows of The Tobolowsky Files, go to facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky, and feel free to email him or me at stephentobolowsky at gmail.com or at slash filmcast at gmail.com. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of The Tobolowsky Files. Tune in next time to hear part two uh, uh, to see how the surgery went with Stephen Tobolowsky. My name is David Chen. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you guys later. Adios. God said fire coming. Judgment day. Say.